Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 7, 13 Vondemia. Last week, we finished our episode talking about the protests and burgeoning riots that were beginning to consume Paris just as the Directory was about to take power. Enemies from both outside and within France saw an opportunity to take advantage of a weakened central government, and many believed it was at this moment they could launch a counter-revolution to reinstate the monarchy and end the chaos that had consumed France for the previous six and a half years. The new government was facing elimination before they even had time to convene, and as we mentioned last week, they were in dire need of a miracle. Now, originally, I wanted to start this episode by transitioning right over from the evening of October 4, 1795, and into the events the next day, following Napoleon as he encountered the mobs, realizing he needed to act, and then being put in charge of, essentially, preventing a civil war. But then I realized that we hadn't really talked about the directory at length. And I think it'd be a good idea to touch on them a bit so that we can establish the context as to how we got to this moment. In doing so, I also want to introduce one of the main members of the directory who will become a pretty big player in the series over the following few episodes. So with that, let's do a quick dive into the directory. After the reign of terror and the purging of the Jacobins, Many of the remaining deputies in the National Convention understood that a new government would have to be created in order to prevent a similar consolidation of power as we saw by the Committee of Public Safety. The unicameral legislature that was the National Convention was widely seen as the primary reason for this, as one ruling coalition could come into power, send their deputies to the committee, and pass legislation as they pleased. And as we saw in episodes two and three, there were just too many swings of power. From the Girondins to the Mountain to the purging of both, and then a dictatorial rule by the most radical of the Jacobin faction. But now, with Robespierre and his allies literally cut off at the head, preventing these dramatic power shifts were seen as critical to establishing stability, while also implementing a style of government that could provide checks on each branch to maintain that balance of power. So in July of 1794, the National Convention, now under the control of the reinstated moderate Girondins in what we call the Thermidorian Reaction, established a new committee to draft what would end up being the Constitution of Year 3, which we touched on briefly at the end of last week's episode. Written mainly by Girondin Convention deputies Pierre Danon, who would later serve as a historian on the revolutionary period, by the way, and Boissy d'Anglas, the Constitution established by Caramel Legislature, consisting of a lower house, known as the Council of 500, which was responsible for drafting legislation, and an upper house, the Council of Ancients, which is analogous to a modern-day Senate, who consisted of 250 men over the age of 40. They would review the legislation and approve it. And the Council of Ancients would also select the members of the executive branch, five men, known as directors, who were all recommended from a list of names by the Council of 500, each with a five-year mandate. This was to prevent any one man from becoming too powerful, but, as we'll come to see, corruption. Now, while this all sounds well and good, and indeed a relief from what we've seen over the previous few years in the Revolution, 
there were some glaring issues right from the start, primarily when it came to voting. You see, and try and keep up here, the deputies in the Council of 500 were voted on by the people, and it was done as an indirect election. So a total franchise of about 5 million people voting in primaries for 30,000 electors, that is 0.5% of the population, who would then turn around and vote on the members to send to the council. So did you get that? The 5 million people, excuse me, the 5 million men would vote in primaries for the 30,000 electors who would then vote on the men to send to the council. Now, the voters were also subjected to stringent property qualifications. That is, they needed to own property. And thus, this ensured an elite, relatively conservative legislature would be given seats in power. So you can already start to see how this would rub the average citizen the wrong way. Further adding to the confusion was that the Constitution of Year 3 was convoluted, consisting of over nearly 400 pages of documents, meaning that misinterpretations would be commonplace. I mean, before they even finished the elections for the new members, the government, which would become known to history as the Directory, was already unpopular from elements of both sides of the political spectrum. Liberals saying it was too conservative with its limitations, and conservatives saying it was just more of the same. So before they even had time to convene, this newly drafted government was already in a knife's edge. Then prior to the implementation of the new constitution, there were still uprisings going on in the peripheral provinces, and much of France's military, as we've mentioned now a few times, was stretched thin between fighting the foreign armies at France's doorstep and the counter-revolutionaries out in those provinces. And so by 1794 and 95, many of these uprisings, especially out in the Vendée, were being offered foreign support, mostly from across the Channel in Britain. And a few contingents were sent over to France, consisting of emigres, who had escaped the terror and were now looking to exact some terror of their own by taking France back for the royalists. And so now with enemy elements inside of France itself, weapons and supplies were being smuggled into Paris to prepare sympathetic forces there to begin a coup and take back the government. Now, interestingly, many of the royalist factions also found sympathy within a few sections of Paris. With the moderate Thermidorians having put down Sanculotte uprisings and now focusing their attention on the more conservative elements of society, they attracted enemies of different political backgrounds uniting for a similar cause. The enemy of my enemy, right? Now, these sections were diverse. They consisted of artisans, middle-class workers, royalists, but also liberal-minded thinkers who, at this point, had come to regard any government in the seats of the National Convention as corrupt and incapable of winning the war. But it was the National Guardsmen among their ranks that terrified the convention to no end. Remember them? They were the police force essentially keeping the peace in Paris throughout these last six years. Well, they too had had enough, and they had been heavily impacted by the failures of the Republican governments. And so now they were beginning to gather and scheme how they could end this corruption for good. And unlike other members of the sections, the Guardsmen had easy access to guns. Now, their access to weapons notwithstanding, because all of these protesters were of so many different political and socioeconomic backgrounds, it made tactical coordination all but impossible. Dan word quickly spread to the government as to what they were planning through underground intelligence services. Now, upon gathering this information, the National Convention could now organize, even if hastily, a resistance to save the government, prevent retributionary bloodshed, and avoid a royalist takeover. And yes, while they didn't know exactly when an attack would take place, they knew one was imminent. 
And so at the beginning of October 1795, just as the new constitution was becoming law, the protests began with demonstrations in the Le Pelletier section of Paris, followed by the toppling of revolutionary liberty trees and the trampling of cockades. Now, while it was only about seven of the 48 Parisian sections that had risen up into what would soon turn into an insurrection, residents from the other sections would also soon join in. And now, there were also rumors beginning to swirl that the entire National Guard could defect to their cause, the potential threat of martial law looming large over the capital city. And as a result, the convention was now forced to act, and violently if necessary. Now, just as a quick side note, if it is a little confusing as to why I'm using both the terms National Convention and Directory seemingly interchangeably, just know that where we are in the story, early October 1795, the convention is still technically convening until the elections for the Council of 500 have completed. Now, at this point, there still aren't any directors, but many of the main players that will come to dominate the directory are playing crucial roles in putting down this uprising. So I'll use both terms, but just know that these actions are indeed the last ones the National Convention would ever enact. Okay, so back to the story. The convention selected General Jacques-François Minot, who commanded the Army of the Interior, as the man to help put down this insurrection. Now, initially, this seemed like an obvious choice. He had good relations with many of the men within the convention, having previously served in the National Constituent Assembly, and he was commanding the forces within France. But more importantly, he had helped put down a similar insurrection by the Sans-Culottes back in May, known as the Coup of One Prairie All. Now, we didn't talk about this attempted insurrection just to keep within our storyline, but it too was important and essentially the ideological opposite of what we're about to see with the Van der Mer coup. Radicals opposing the moderate, elitist Thermidorians and feeling that they were now left out of the political decision-making. Important in its own right, but Napoleon wasn't involved in its capitulation, so there it is. But Manu was, and while he seemed cut out for this similar uprising, confusion among his generals mixed in with a sprinkling of his own incompetence, as we've seen plenty of times, forced Manu to approach the insurrectionists with attempts at negotiating a peace. Now, the convention leaders were apoplectic at this notion, sacking him and branding him a traitor, and he was arrested, tried, but acquitted before year's end. However, with the attack approaching and the convention now without a general, they hastily appointed their president to lead the defense of the city, one Paul-François-Jean-Nicolas. Now, this gentleman is going to be a pretty big player in our story over the next few years, so let's spend a minute or two introducing the man who is often associated with the directory and its corruption, Paul-François-Jean-Nicolas, better known as Paul Barat. Paul Barat was born in 1755 in the modern-day French department of Var. Descended from Provence nobility, he was able to enter the Royal French Army at the age of 16 and served in India during the Second Anglo-Miser War, seeing combat in the British sieges there. Returning to France and living a life of luxury and relative obscurity, Barat came to national prominence after the start of the French Revolution. Initially taking a seat in the High National Court in Orléans, he was later appointed as commissioner of the French army in the south, facing off against the kingdoms of Piedmont and Sardinia. Now, after the formation of the National Convention, he was voted into the chamber as representative from his native Var province and was one of the majority who voted to execute King Louis XVI in January of 1793. But while Barat was a convention delegate, he was often absent from Paris, preferring to remain close to his home in the south of France, administering the convention's duties from there. And it was here that Barat was made aware and introduced to Napoleon Bonaparte, having met his acquaintance during the Siege of Toulon while he commissioned the Army of Italy. 
Now, we'll have plenty of time to discuss Bahaz and Napoleon's relationship because, again, it's going to be a big part of our story in the coming episodes. But for now, let's just say their relationship was mercurial at best. In 1794, Barat was one of the main convention delegates who assisted in overthrowing Robespierre and helped to form the centrist Thermidorian reaction that followed his execution. Rising as one of the new convention's leaders, Barat was instrumental in helping to legitimize, see, bribe, the new government, and he was awarded in his quote-unquote efforts by being named one of the first five directors. And in time, he would be the one director most often associated with the government and its legacy, and his reputation as a corrupt statesman has more or less lingered to this day. But before Barat was made a director, he was made a military commander of the Army of the Interior to help put down a royalist insurrection in October of 1795, despite not having served in any military leadership capacity and not having seen military action since he was 18 years old in 1783. His orders? To save the revolution. What on earth could go wrong? But as it would turn out, Barat was well aware that he was in over his head, and turned to none other than Napoleon Bonaparte to assist him in putting down this insurrection. As we mentioned earlier, Barat was made aware of Napoleon after Toulon and the Piedmontese campaigns, and while the choice seemed logical, it was more out of necessity. As crazy as it may seem, Paris at the time had few competent generals in the city proper. And so, as is the case with much of Napoleon's early career, availability was made into an opportunity for the 26-year-old brigadier general. Which brings us to where we left off at the end of last week. We closed that episode on the night of October 4th, 1795, with Napoleon leaving the theater and hearing the commotion from the forming insurrectionists. No doubt at least generally aware of the sectional plots, Napoleon's loathing for mob violence was enough to persuade him to accept Barra's overtures. He wanted no repeat of the storming of the Tuileries Palace from 1792, only this time he would get the opportunity to stop them personally. He said, quote, Good and upstanding people must be persuaded by gentle means. The rabble must be moved by terror. On the following morning, October 5th or 13th Vendemia in the revolutionary calendar, Barat ordered Napoleon second in command of the Army of the Interior, but Napoleon requested that he be in charge of all units and battle plans, the request that was granted by Barat. The only order Barat gave to Napoleon was a simple one, crush the rebellion by any means necessary. Now with the command of an entire army, Napoleon picked up from where he left off at Toulon. His first order was to secure cannons to be used against the mobs, instructing future marshal and current captain Joachim Murat to secure the Sablons military camp two miles outside of the city and bring them to the center of Paris. Murat was to take 100 cavalrymen with him and was ordered to cut down anyone who tried to stop them. Guarded by only 50 men, the Sablon's camp was easily accessible, and had the royalist factions been able to have any sort of cohesion, they likely could have taken those cannons for themselves. A great opportunity missed. Napoleon's forces consisted of about 4,500 men, with a further 1,500 gendarmes and veterans from Les Invalides. Opposing them were a contingent of close to 30,000 men, though these numbers may have been exaggerated for propaganda purposes. Nevertheless, Napoleon was significantly outnumbered, but with royalist forces of varying levels of cohesion, Napoleon planned to use one of his favorite weapons to counterbalance the numerically superior opponent, Grapeshot. Grapeshot is the name for a large canister that is fired from cannons, which, once fired, rips open and sends lead balls in every direction, inflicting as much damage as possible. Now, while not always on target, what Grapeshot lacked in accuracy, it made up for in sheer volume of balls fired. 
and Napoleon would deploy them to deadly effect. Once the cannons arrived between the hours of 6 and 9 a.m., Napoleon ordered his men to place two cannons at the entrance of the Rue Saint-Niquais, one in front of the church at Saint-Roche, two in the Rue Saint-Honneur near the Place Vendôme, and the final two facing the Pont Royal at the Cue Voltaire. With his main infantry position behind the cannons, he then sent his reserve troops to defend the Tuileries with a convention sap and had his cavalry ready at the Place de la Révolution. As we've mentioned a few times already, the insurrectionists were poorly organized and also spent much of the morning and early afternoon trying to negotiate their terms, wasting valuable time to set up their own fortifications around the city. It wasn't until the late afternoon that they even began to gather around the city center, heading north towards the Tuileries Palace. Napoleon's men, armed and ready, were in position to repel any potential advances. Now, there is some debate as to who fired first, but whenever the first shots were heard sometime after 4 p.m. on October 5th, Napoleon's forces unleashed a hail of cannon fire onto the assembled insurrectionaries, repelling their advance with deadly effect. The reservists, acting as supporting infantry behind the artillery lines, then moved in and cut down any advancing royalists attempting to break through the Republican positions. Likely shocked at the fact that the government would use cannon fire against civilians in the streets of Paris, the royalist attacks wavered thereafter. Now further crippling the royalist cause were their attempted assaults on the bridges over the River Seine. Napoleon, leading the defense himself, used one of his patented battle strategies, blocking the bridges and mowing down the royalists as they attempted to cross the choke points. Napoleon's later use of bridge defenses would become one of his most iconic and led to some of the greatest victories of his career. Unable to gain a strategic position near the Tuileries, the royalists were now forced to retreat back to their de facto headquarters at the Church of Saint-Roche. Napoleon then ordered Miara's cavalry to counterattack by following the retreating royalist forces and cutting them down, man after man. The intermittent street fighting continued throughout the afternoon and into the early evening, but by 6 p.m., Napoleon's forces had surrounded the church, cannons facing the doors, and grape shot ready to be unleashed. Resigned to their impossible situation, the royalists surrendered and ended the short-lived attempted coup. By the end of the battle, Napoleon's forces lost 12 men to the fighting, but the royalists, they lost over 300. It was an overwhelming victory for the convention, enabling them to establish the Directory's legitimacy, and Napoleon was lauded for his tactical brilliance, direction under fire, he was wounded in the battle and had his horse shot from under him again, as well as his decisive action to end the hostilities as quickly as possible given the circumstances. While Toulon put Napoleon on the international map, it was the coup of 13 Vendemia that Napoleon began his march to immortality. The evening of 13 Vendemia has become known as Napoleon giving the royalists a whiff of grape shot, a phrase often ascribed to Napoleon himself, but likely written by the man who first brought it to the historical record, Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle. Now Carlyle's own how should I put it, eccentric as he is notwithstanding, the whiff of grape shot has gone down as the stuff of legends, as it so perfectly encapsulates the battle that Napoleon engineered. And indeed, there were plenty of whiffs of grape shot to be had that day, and many more in the years ahead. Oh, and for the record, Napoleon is now 3-0 in battle, so just making sure we're keeping track at home now. As rainfall fell on the night of 13 Vendemia, washing the blood-soaked streets of Paris from the carnage that had ensued only hours earlier, the propaganda campaign for and against Napoleon began almost immediately. The British would employ Vendemia throughout the Napoleonic campaigns as an example of his cruelty, and that it was an allied imperative to defeat him as if he were the devil carnate himself. French general Jean Césarine, who would later defect to the British, claimed in his book that, quote, a Bonaparte set the example of inhumanity that day. 
His deliberate use of the Italian spelling of his name was a textbook British smear tactic to portray Napoleon as a foreigner leading France, something they hoped would motivate the French people to rally against him. Now, the defeated royalists, for their part, were relatively spared the retribution so often ascribed to insurrectionists, but even for their lenient punishments, they could not come to respect the man who had so thoroughly beaten them. They gave him the nickname General Vondamia, vilifying him as a man who would cut down even his own countrymen in pursuit of his own personal glory. Napoleon would later claim that the nickname would be his, quote, first title of glory, and he would celebrate its anniversary when he became first consul four years later. Prophetic to the last. But Napoleon gained far more than he lost on that day. Aside from his personal prestige growing, being named as the much-coveted commander of the Army of the Interior, he was also compensated substantially from preventing a civil war from breaking out in the country's capital. He received a bonus of 48,000 francs per year, his brothers received new jobs within the government, advancing their own careers, and he soon began to espouse the lifestyle he had once come to hate in his early Jacobin days. Never again would he wear muddy boots, never again would he be seen but in a fine coach carriage, and never again would he go days without eating. A general in rank, and now a general in everyday life. Napoleon would also use his promotion as the head of the army in the interior to stamp out any further resistance still milling around about in Paris. He closed down the Pantheon Club in the city, the secret meeting place for royalists and their sympathizers, as well as to purge any royalists still in government positions, disarming the civilian population as he went. He was, for all intents and purposes, the head of a martial law which had descended over the French capital, determined to ensure that 13 Vendemia would be the only such event of its kind. And while there would be several more coups to follow, I mean, come on, the directory hasn't even technically been sworn in yet, none would take on the bloodshed seen on that early October day. And that takes us to the end of 1795. Napoleon, at just 26 years old, has already seen enough adventure to fill an entire lifetime for even the most daring of individuals. Hardly a man less than a decade ago, but after nearly six long, chaotic, bloody years of revolution, there are still new dawns nearing their horizons. Because just as the National Convention was to transition into the Council of 500, Council of Ancients, and the Directory, Napoleon would receive two gifts that would change his life forever. Being named as the commander of the Army of Italy, ensuring his career would be etched in stone, and meeting the true love of his life, Marie-Joseph-Roche-Tacher de la Pagerie, or, as Napoleon called her, Josephine. So, a little bit of a shorter episode this week than over the previous six. But don't fret, because over the next week and a half, I'm going to be releasing two new episodes. A little supplemental dedicated to the love of Napoleon's life, the recently widowed Josephine Bouchanet, and soon-to-be Empress Josephine. Now, Josephine could consume an entire mini-series on her own, but we'll do our best to give her the respect she's entitled to, especially since she did so much for the Empire in her own right. And then finally, we'll get into the Italian campaign, a command the directory gave Napoleon as a thank you for saving our asses after 13 Vendemia, and one that was merely meant to be a sideshow as the rest of the army battled against Austria and Prussia out in the east. Well, Napoleon made sure that the directory and history would forever remember his Italian campaign not as a sideshow, but as the main show. (laughs) 